What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's episode is with Rich Antonello, the former founder and CEO of Complex. In this conversation, we discuss building Complex into a $300 million business, long-form content versus short-form content, how Complex built a $50 million hot sauce brand, angel investing in NFTs, crypto, and Web3, and what Rich would build if he had to start all over. This was an awesome conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Today's episode is brought to you by Whoop. Whoop is a 24-7 personalized fitness wearable that's here to help you improve your recovery, sleep, fitness, and health. Here's how it works. Each day when you get up, Whoop gives you a recovery score based on your sleep, resting heart rate, respiratory rate, and heart rate variability. Your score lets you know how to approach your day, whether you should push yourself during your workout or activity, or if you should skip the gym and take a rest day. You wear your Whoop on your wrist, bicep, or now within one of their smart garments clothings called Whoop Body. The band connects with an app on your phone and automatically measures your heart rate, calories, and activity levels throughout the day. The band also automatically detects and classifies your workouts, so there's never an issue in forgetting to press go or on a run. You can then analyze your activity and recovery levels in your app. There's also a ton of coaching features within it, like Strain Coach, which gives you target workout exertion goals tailored to your body's recovery level for that day. Those goals change over the course of the day, depending on how active you've been. That coaching is where Whoop really shines. Whether you're interested in how CBD or alcohol impacts your sleep and recovery, or you are wondering how long of a run you should go on, Whoop is there to provide you with personalized data to make sure you're aware of the impact these decisions have on your body. I've been wearing Whoop for over a year now, and it's drastically improved the way I approach fitness and think about my recovery. But here's the best part. Whoop is now offering 15% off of their all-new Whoop 4.0 right now with the code JOE at checkout. Go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P.com. Enter Joe at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, train smarter, and now feel healthier with Whoop. Optimize your performance with the all-new Whoop 4.0 today. Next up is Public Rec. Are you looking to upgrade your baggy sweats? It's time to check out Public Rec. Their best-selling all-day, everyday pant is the perfect combination of indoor comfort and outdoor style. Myself, along with thousands of others, are wearing these, and trust me, they live up to the height. Finally, a more stylish alternative to sweatpants that are way more comfortable than jeans. Now, your favorite lounge pants can also be your go-tos for work, happy hour, and the gym. After a year at home, they're definitely the pants you need, now that you need pants. Public Rec rarely discounts, but right now, they have an exclusive offer just for my listeners. Go to publicrec.com and use promo code HUDDLE, H-U-D-D-L-E, to receive 10% off. This episode is also sponsored by CoinCloud. Did you know you don't need a bank account to buy crypto? CoinCloud makes it easy to buy or sell Bitcoin and 30 plus other digital assets with their digital currency machines. It's the most convenient way to make a transaction. With thousands of machines across the country, there's no need to connect your bank account or wait in lines. Plus, they offer live 24-7 US-based customer support. Simply put, CoinCloud wants to make it easy for you to get involved in crypto. Get $50 off in free Bitcoin when you buy $200 or more at any CoinCloud machine and use the promo code Joe. You heard that right. That's free Bitcoin. For details, go to coin.cloud slash Joe. That's coin.cloud slash Joe. And don't forget to use promo code Joe for free Bitcoin. All right, Rich, I'm pumped to sit down with you today. Thank you for doing this. Thank you. Of course. Excited myself. Happy to do it. I want to talk about 
investing. I want to talk about all the new stuff going on in the world of crypto, Web3, Metaverse, all of that. But let's start with Complex. You have been running Complex for, I believe, around two decades now, right? You were filming the business <laughs> right you, after- really old, by the way. <laughs> that wasn't my that. goal, but I'm trying to level set your experience here so everyone knows that you know what's going on, right? So you founded the business right after 9-11. Just talk me through kind of why you started it, why Complex was the right idea, and what made you do it. So I actually, I didn't come up with the original concept. It was actually founded by the cabal of Seth Gersberg, Mark Echo, and Marcy, the three Echo founders. So they came up with the concept. They had put out one issue of a magazine that took them about two years to put out. And I saw the issue and I saw it more for the potential that it was. It was really a coming together of a whole bunch of different vertical cultures that had been previously dismissed as niche. So hip hop, sneakers, art, design, basically everything that is disproportionately informing youth culture today were the topics that they were trying to cover back then but they were doing it in a very bad way from an executional perspective. So I had the pleasure to meet the team because I knew the marketing director of Vecker, this guy named Rob Weinstein. And we sat down and I had a very long conversation with Seth and Mark, and we ended up screaming at each other for about three and a half hours. And they were like, great, we don't know what we're doing. You come and fix it and let's run it. So we had a shared vision of what it was, but they didn't have the executional expertise. And then I'm like, here's what you're trying to do. And it was a whole bunch of concentric circles. And my viewpoint was, you're not bringing them together for scales purpose. You're bringing them together because they are overlapping in who the target audience fundamentally was. And if you look at the topics now, they're all duh. But back then, 20 years ago, a lot of people would dismiss hip hop, skateboarding, sneakers as irrelevant in the grand scheme of things. Do you think you were almost a little too early? There's no question we were too early. We had to work our ass off to basically drive a lot of dollars very early into the magazine. We had to scare people into motivation by fear of that you're missing out on the future of youth culture. All true and accurate. They weren't lies, but let's put it this way. We had to drag brands and advertisers along rather than beat them back from our doors. In the beginning, everybody dismissed us as, again, super niche, too small, way ahead of the curve, too cool for school. You name it, we heard it. But every great business that really kind of redefines a category has to go through that exact time frame. Yeah. And one of the things that I'll give you some credit, I don't think you get enough credit for is it's hard to build a media business, even harder to build a successful media business. And then it's even harder <clears> to build a successful one that lasted for multiple decades. You guys obviously built an incredible business, but you went through kind of the great financial crisis, COVID, the business was founded right after 9-11. There was a bunch of struggles along the way. So what was yes. the hardest period in your mind during your time building this business? First of all, it's impossible to pick the hardest, but I'll give you what was one of three. Look, the financial crisis happened and it was a compounding effect for us because right beforehand, we had transitioned into digital at the end of 2006, beginning of 2007. You have to remember print was just about starting their downfall in 2007. Hip hop and streetwear, which was our funding resource because of Echo, was actually seeing a reset during 07, 08. And then the financial crisis happened. So we were running out of our funding capital. We hadn't realized the maturity of the digital business. We were having a very big challenge to the print side of our business. 
all at one time. And people were questioning the value of monetary currency, by the way, very similar today, without the run on the banks. And you have to remember, we were a startup. We were very lean and mean. And we didn't have a lot of people with a ton of experience in going out and getting venture capital at that point either. Venture was still very nascent, at least for a great deal of us. So I realized the only way we were going to have working capital to go forward into 08 and 09 was I'm going to have to go raise capital, give some cash back to my owners, take them off the cap table, bring some people to accelerate us in and allow us to get through this time frame. And when you are in a position to not potentially pay your people, it's a lot worse than some social media fiasco that you have to deal with, which I think a lot of people look at as one of their worst nightmares right now. It's real life. So talk me through that though, right? Because from my understanding, and correct me where I'm wrong here, <clears throat> is you guys went through a period of time during the great financial crisis where the parent company or your investors essentially said, hey, we're cutting the funding. You guys didn't have much, if any money in the bank, and you either had to reduce headcount or you had to figure out another way to pay people. Is that accurate? And kind of just walk me through what you did in that scenario. So it's even more, pardon the pun, complex than that. Basically, Echoes had a big line of credit with CIT. And CIT was like, by the way, we're pulling everybody's line of credit. Their entire funding resource collapsed. They had to spend all of their capital, working capital to fund the streetwear business just to keep the core business alive. So they were like, complex, you're on your own completely. Figure it out. And I was like, oh my God, if you know anything about publishing the landscape and the lag of working capital is very high. You spend all the money on the front, maybe six months later, you're getting your money from the agencies and your brands. So it's a capital intensive business and nobody was spending money. So I didn't know when it was going to come in, not just when, but if it was going to come in at all. So what we did is A, I'm out there operating the business, but then I'm also trying to raise venture capital, speaking to like Excel and Austin Ventures and a whole bunch of Excel and AV after about a year and a half to try and finally get to a deal. But during that gap between when we were originally going to get funding to when it actually occurred, we had two different ways to attack things. We had basically the budget for about 19 out of the 38 people that were current employees. And I was like, listen, we can either cut those people and not really have any business, or we can go to the top five executives. We can take 60% pay cuts and keep everybody on staff. So I was able to convince during a very scary period of time, the key executives who were the most highly paid to take 60% pay cuts on their full comp, not just salary, but everything to be able to keep the entire business afloat and operate with everybody there. So we were able to keep everybody together, which enabled me to go raise the capital, which then enabled us to continue to accelerate through. So to me, it's one of those where, you know, there's always that phrase, like it's better to own 10% of a larger business with good funding. My argument is also when you're running your business, it's better to tighten your belt, share the pain across everybody rather than do the hand in front of your face, knee jerk reaction of cutting people. And to me also in a media business, it's about the people. So if you're not investing in your people, you're not investing in your business. Yeah. And I guess the one other thing to add to that, right, is you guys are producing premium content. It's not cheap content to make. It's expensive. And those lead times can cause trouble from a capital perspective. But my question off of that would be, did the employees know what you guys were doing at that point or no? I mean, look, everybody was scared at that point. You were probably in high school or something at that point. Everybody was macro aware. They're, not everybody was acutely aware of how specific. It's a very interesting thing. And we should talk about this for a little bit because I go back and forth. 
everybody argues for complete and utter transparency in this day and age. My argument would be, it's not that I didn't love everybody on my staff. It's not that I don't respect everybody on my staff, but I didn't know every single personal situation. And if they were aware of how tight our balance sheet was and how touch and go every paycheck was, I don't think we would have been, if we were completely transparent with everybody about how scary it was, I think we would have lost more employees and we wouldn't have actually had a business to invest in afterwards and no one would have realized the end. So I'm not arguing against transparency. I'm arguing against complete and utter transparency on all topics at all times. And I think there's a lot of people that don't talk about that enough personally. I think I probably agree with you on that because ultimately what you're doing is protecting people from themselves. And that's right. One great example was I had Jim Heather on this podcast, who's the CEO of Hyperice. And he mentioned previously, it's a billion dollar company now, right? They're going to be valued at a billion dollars next time they raise capital. When they first started 2013, 2014, they were doing like three or $400,000 of sales annually. They ran out of money and they went to go raise money. And he called up an investor, this MMA guy, Jake. He said, Jake, I need money. Are you going to invest? And Jake said, yeah, I'm going to invest. I was going to write a 200, $300,000 check or whatever it was at the time. He says, I need you to bring it to my office today. Right. And he literally wasn't going to make payroll that night. So he had to run down to the bank. He says he's running red lights, speeding, doing all the stuff. They make payroll. They get more funding. They keep the business going. All these early employees, most of them had equity in the business. It's had tremendous upside since then. Right. So I think there is some level of protecting people from themselves. Being transparent is good. But if you do it too much, people can make rash decisions that may not be in their best interest. That's right. And also, it's not. Look, I'm a very big fan of conviction, but not without a ton of pragmatism. My viewpoint is you can be wildly ambitious. And my job as CEO is to be incredibly ambitious and incredibly vision oriented. But at the same time, I'm serving not just my shareholders, but I'm serving the employees by being incredibly pragmatic and realistic about those things. And hopefully they trust me enough to know whether I share it or not, that I'm always putting them first and protecting them. That to me is a CEO's job as well. Yeah, I agree. That's important. I'm curious if when you were running out of money, right, or running on very thin working capital and you're trying to raise money and executives are taking pay cuts, did getting through that period change how you manage the business going forward? Probably more so than anything that ever happened to me or any lesson I ever learned from school or anything like that. When your business is touch and go, and when people who are your friends and your employees and they look at you as your leader, decide to put that level of confidence in you because they believe so much in your vision and your ability to actually go execute and get capital. Like that's really what that was. Those people were basically taking their money, putting it down on black. And that was like my color, my number. And they're going, we're riding on you. And what that does to me is it showed me how important two things, how important me truly being present and not taking being a leader for granted was. So going from that day forward, for me, I always spent a disproportionate amount of time explaining why we were doing things and bringing people along because that was an investment in the future amount of dedication I was going to get on the backside. The more I invest time-wise and in each individual understanding my vision and the goals of the company, 
the more dedication and loyalty you're going to get on the backside. That's one kind of trade in a, the way to think about that. And secondarily is also, I realized I used to throw around the words like a media company is the people and the people make the product. So the people are the ultimate product. I realized when you walk that walk, people don't forget either. So we still have a lot of employees from that time frame are still with us. So to me, when you walk the walk of the talk that everybody talks out there these days, very few people will walk that walk when it gets tough. Those are the two things that I learned about myself. And I learned about being a leader from a business perspective by being challenged to that degree. Yeah, it certainly changes people, I would assume, from a thought perspective, at least. So and, my question- and you, don't, you know what I'll tell you? One, and one other thing, yeah. you realize you get through something like that and almost to a detriment, you feel invincible. You're like, if I can get through that, there's nothing that can stop us. Because you and can't imagine anything worse, right? A hundred percent. It's not ego and it's not cockiness. It's a foundational level of confidence that when you make it through something like that and come out stronger- and your vision gets realized, it's indescribable. It well, really I, is. I assume it's similar to athletics, right? Where you know that you have faced a problem like this before and you've overcome it. So you have that confidence inside yourself to know that you can do it again. <clears throat> That's right. Yeah, you don't see Brady getting worried when he's four no, points the, down. The guy's not even sweating left. in the fourth quarter. <laughs> All right, let's talk about yep. the transition from print to digital for a second. You guys made it before a lot of others did. You guys were early in 2007, maybe, or around that time. Yep. Everyone else capitulated in like 2009 from print and started doing digital stuff. So you guys were early on that side of it. We can't rewind, obviously, and go back and say, hey, we should go do this. We should build a business. It'll work really well on the digital front. But what did you see at the time that, that you rely on today and say, hey, if I start seeing these trends, if I see these challenges, if I see people going through this, I'm going to know that it's time to pivot. I'm going to know that it's time to go all in on something else. First of all, brilliant framing of the question, right? Because to me, it's always the lesson that you're going to pull out of this. Look, to me, everything is thought process, right? So when we were a magazine, we were a 375,000 surf magazine at that point at the end of 2006, and we had finally broken through. A lot of these subcultures were now being recognized as the ultimate impact and influence of youth culture. It was the beginning of it. But we had AT&T, McDonald's, Verizon, everybody and their brother was like, okay, we believe you now. We want to spend all this money with you, but we're limited to your scale. And in order to scale a magazine, it's very expensive with subscriptions and the printed product. My viewpoint was, well, wait a second, I have all this money of people telling me we are ready to spend against your target audience. We are ready to spend against your individual brand with that voice. So it took the risk factor down for me to go, we have to go to digital because the speed at which we can go will enable us to get more dollars that we know are already there that we just have to provide the product. So my viewpoint was, and it's a repeatable thought process, it was we knew there were dollars available. We knew we had the right product fit for it. So it took the risk down. And that's when we were like, okay, how can we accelerate and realize those dollars faster? And something that is also innate to our target audience, which was how can we say we're the leading youth culture brand if we weren't the leading youth culture brand from a digital perspective? So it solved the qualitative and the quantitative. And the thought process is how do you de-risk it instead of having to create and educate the community and find money? How do you go after money that is there already 
without reverse engineering something as well. And that was really the thought process. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I love that. My other question off of that would be, you guys have focused a lot on longer firm content, really premium, high quality stuff. You've created some great IP off of that. You have some other businesses that we can dive into, whether it's the hot sauce stuff or or merchandise and other things. But a lot of other brands have taken the other route, which is short form content. And right, it's easy to look back and say, hey, we all realize long form content is really good from a monetization perspective and all of that. But was this a conscious decision? And why did you do it to focus on long form versus short form? Well, there's two fronts to this again pulling the same string from the last conversation is, okay, when we went into video hard into 2012, and by the way, again, that was very early relative to a lot of other people because the social platforms hadn't really pivoted to becoming massive video platforms yet either. Twitter, there was no video on at that point. Facebook hadn't really focused on it yet. It was really just YouTube driving a lot of that at that time. So for us, we looked at it like, okay, If there's something new going on from a youth culture perspective, we have to be a leader. But my viewpoint is, great, we have to be a leader in video, but how is complex gonna be unique? How is our offering gonna be differentiated from our competition? And most importantly, how do we add value to the end consumer? Because if we check those boxes, irrespective of trends, we're gonna be fine because we can make that work from a business perspective. So my viewpoint was, great, everybody was doing a lot of these short videos, viral stuff, but those were one-offs to me. It didn't make any sense because they weren't repeatable. So if it's not repeatable, how do you sell it on the front side? To me, the only thing that was sellable were creating franchise, serialized content so that you have a repeated audience, you drop it at scheduled times, or people can go back and binge watch a library And I'm like, and if we create a hit, we'll be able to take it upstream to streamers at that point. So to me, that made the most sense, even though it was more money initially, it checks the three boxes that we were talking about earlier and made sense on an investment basis. So it's not just short-term monetization, but it gives you a library that has long-term monetization with multiple windows and multiple regions. And my viewpoint also, especially on the value exchange with the end consumer is when you give them something to latch onto, like if they love the video of people putting rubber bands around a watermelon, they're not gonna remember which brand brought you that. They'll watch it and they might share it a ton, it might become a meme, but nobody gives a shit about what brand brought that to you. But if you create an interview show that completely disorients the famous celebrity and has a really interesting hook to it, like Hot Ones does, with 10 wings that get progressively hotter and and the questions get progressively more difficult, you now create a community. Everything Complex has always done from day one about is creating communities. We were not just a participant, but a definer, we believe, of the sneaker community, right? We brought hip hop to the mainstream. So for us is how do you take and build a community now in this other form that adds value to the end consumer, makes sense on a qualitative basis because the consumer's like, oh shit, I love this show. I want more of it. And have something that makes sense from a business perspective. I know that was a lot, but that's the way we look at everything from about 95 angles, short-term, long-term, inside, outside, community, investor, the brand. Like if you're not considering every single aspect of that in every initiative, you're not going to have a long-term business. 
Yeah, I completely agree. And there's a few things to unpack there, right? One is, I don't think people normally realize how early you guys were. I was just thinking to myself that Facebook didn't buy Instagram until 2012. And at that point, it was still a photo sharing platform. It wasn't doing any of the video stuff. The scale wasn't nearly where it is. All these platforms were essentially non-existent from a video perspective. So that focus on that was obviously early and a good decision. And then my thought process on the, the long form versus short form content is the retention of customers, right? And of that community. I assume that you guys saw a tremendous uptick in the retention of these people because you're bringing them not only content that they could connect with, but they're spending more time on your sites. They're seeing more of your products. They don't care necessarily about the three second video as much when you can talk to them for 20 minutes straight. And I will tell you something else. The likelihood of somebody who spends 20 minutes with your product versus three seconds, they become organic brand ambassadors. Be like, oh my God, you have to watch this show. Do you know how many people were like, you have to watch this show for everyday struggle, for sneaker shopping with Joe Puma, for hot ones, for the burger show, for pizza wars. Like part of our investment in the community is not just the value exchange of the premium content, but it's the organic upside of creating brand, natural organic brand ambassadors because of the quality of that content. Yeah, people tell other people. Well, you basically, if your content's a piece of shit, you have to spend a lot of money marketing it because you have to force people to go to it. If your content's great and it's on point, you've taken something that was an expense, the marketing, and you've turned it into a revenue line item. Those people now become brand ambassadors on social, which extends the reach and scale of that brand, which extends the monetization. So you're flipping your income statement as well. Yeah, I love that. And I want to double click on some of those content series that you talked about, because again, one of the fast things you guys did was just go right outside of just sponsorships. So hot ones specifically, I would love to know kind of how you guys thought about the actual hot sauce company, right? So for the people that don't know, you guys have the show where people come in, they eat the hot wings and they get a little uncomfortable. And maybe they say some things that their media training tells them not to normally say, and people get super interested in these videos go vile, right? And it's had tremendous success. It's been a long series, but off of that, Rather than just using anyone's hot sauce, you guys developed your own. So talk me through kind of how that worked out and how big that business is. So to be fair, the GM of that business, this guy, Chris Schoenberger, who started out as the EIC of First We Feast as a platform, was a website more so than it was a brand first. And it was not getting a ton of traffic because basically it was supposed to be a culture site first that was food oriented, which it was. And it checked all these boxes and the content was brilliant. But they launched a show called Hot Ones. And Sean Evans does an unbelievable job. It's not just the wings that are so hot that elicit those responses. The amount of research that goes into those shows on the questions that make that show, that are questions that are not being asked at normal press junkets, that disarm the person just as much as the hot sauce does, is very intentional. And I give them a lot of credit. But First We Feed was not scaling as a traditional web property. And I give Chris Schoenberger all the credit in the world going, hey, I'm responsible for growing this brand and the P&L as he matured into the general manager of the brand. And we would go and do sessions. He's like, look, we're not going to be a website first the way Complex makes money. We're going to make money from serialized content like Hot Ones and Pizza Wars and other things like that. And I'm like, totally makes sense. And then he's like, look, the show has made several of these hot sauces now have become the number one selling hot sauce on Amazon. So when we would make a hot sauce part of our lineup, we were making all this money for everybody else, but getting no credit. So So real quick, real quick, you guys would partner with a company or use someone else's hot sauce, put it on the show, and then everyone would go and buy it basically. And it would vault up to number one in Amazon. 
Correct. Right now, the number one selling hot sauce on Amazon is something called The Bomb. It's the most painful hot sauce in the lineup. It's number seven currently in our season. And by the way, it doesn't have flavor. It just has temperature. It's basically like taking a blowtorch for your mouth. And it's a horrible experience, but we were like, well, wait a second. If we can do that for them, we should do it for ourselves. So we went to this company called Heatnist and they developed our own hot sauce. It wasn't, we didn't just slap a label on. We were like, best in class product, unbelievable value. We designed the label, grew our own pepper, and we launched something called the Hot Ones Classic. And by the way, boom, it just exploded on us. One sauce quickly turned into three, which turned into five, which by the way, then turned into the number one selling game on Amazon right now, which is also a drinking game if you really think about it. And it also ended up becoming a show on TNT. It wasn't a brand extension to throw a name or a brand on. This was organic because the depth of community and how much these people cared about the show, the deeper the connection to the end community, the more revenue lines you could stack on top. Because think about it like a hammock. Most brands have dotted line content to their consumers. If it's dotted line and you try and stack other revenues on top of it, rather than just some back-end arbitrary lowest common denominator advertising, it'll fall through the middle. If you have a deep connection to the consumer, it's strong. You can layer on things. And again, it's community versus audience. And not enough people make the delineation. There's plenty of brands that have audience. There's very few that really have brands. Yeah, I love that thought process of the hammock, right? Because if the foundation is strong with a community rather than an audience, you can essentially sell them everything or anything you want. That's right. Well, All by right. the way, you don't even have to sell them. Half yeah. the time, it's like, you already know the money's there. They're ready to sign up. It's not to go back to the other thing. It was like when the advertisers were telling me, we want to buy more from you. We need more scale. The communities are telling us, give us more products. That makes sense. Yep. So I don't know if you can share this or if you know the numbers off the top of your head, but like what was, let's call it the sponsorship of Hot Ones going for before? Like how much money were you guys making off Hot Ones before this stuff? And then how big is this business now? Oh, I mean, look. Like how much hot sauce are you guys, how much hot sauce are you guys selling? We used to sell, like when Hot Ones first started, you got to remember the first year, the first season was not popular. I mean, I don't think we broke 5,000 views on like an episode. And then we did an episode with Key and Peele And then everybody started watching all of it and it became a phenomenon. And when we were selling that show at first, I believe, no joke, we were selling it for five or $10,000 an episode. We are now selling that for hundreds of thousands of dollars an episode just for sponsorship. We're driving, I believe it's over 35 or $40 million of hot sauce and licensing of the product now at this point and on a gross basis, you know, obviously we're a very premium license. So we just get the net, but we take very little risk on the other side, but on a gross basis, it's a significant business. First we feast alone is a wildly significant brand and business on its own. Yeah. So that's fascinating. First off selling 35, 40 million. I don't care if it's gross net, whatever of hot sauce is absolutely insane. So that's amazing. That's very cool to see you guys take a show, go from five to $10,000 sponsorship to hundreds of thousands, plus the whole, there's merchandise now, there's IP built off of it with hot sauce and games. And it is literally the playbook. That's the playbook that I think everyone is trying to copy. So kudos to you guys on that. All right. I would like to talk about, you guys have recently sold the business. BuzzFeed is buying the business. I don't know if these numbers are public or whatnot, but I saw it's reportedly around $300 million with some cash and some equity. Why are you guys selling the business now? Well, number one, we already sold it. 
Just FYI, five and a half years ago, I sold it for the first time to a joint venture between Verizon and Hearst, which was fabulous at the time because Verizon was very focused on media and they had a large initiative called Go90, which was their mobile video product. They have since divested of that and a lot of their media driving both brands as well as their aspirations. So they were no longer really focused on that aspect of our business. And because it was also not solely owned by them, we never integrated into them. And because we were not solely owned by Hearst, we never integrated into them. If you think about those two portfolios and the fact that we're no longer driving towards being a solution for Verizon for Go90, it created an opportunity for us to go, well, wait a second, should we relook at the context of what this business is? We've been profitable. We've given you guys distributions of large scale amounts of cash. It's great. It's been a successful play so far, but the long-term is we're a brand that needs more investment. You guys are not aligned from where we need to go, both short and long-term and the financial structuring behind that as well. So we started looking for other opportunities. Buzzfeed was a tremendous compliment to us. They're a kind of brand portfolio as well with Tasty and HuffPo and Buzzfeed all focused on millennials and Gen Zs, but in a very different way, different topics. They're more of an audience play. We're more of a brand play. They're doing a lot of volume sales. We're doing a lot of premium, higher margin things. So our viewpoint was, is if we could put this whole thing together in a large scale holding company model with best in class shared services across the board, we can bring more qualitative stuff. They can bring the more quantitative stuff you'd have a best-in-class overall digital publishing company. Yeah, I love that. Leverage their audience and kind of some of their capabilities also. Makes total sense. Okay, so how is your role changing? So you were the CEO before, you're shifting to an advisory role now. So just talk me through kind of how your role is going to change. Basically, I'll make a little bit of a joke in that I won't have to deal with any of the day-to-day tactical things. And I get the gift of never having to talk to HR or legal ever again, which by the way, you're smiling because you know how big of a gift that actually is. Yeah, wonderful people, but they bring a lot. I love, by the way, two of my favorite teams, but those headaches alone are horrific, especially in this day and age, in this backdrop and context and challenging environments. I get the pleasure of continuing to work with Jonah, who is one of the smartest people I've ever met and my current team, Christian and Justin and, Edgar and everybody over there. And I get to continue to be very involved on a strategic and a vision basis without any of the worries or headaches or panicked emails at four o'clock in the morning of execution and tactics. So I kind of get to have my cake and eat it too. Yeah. I want to talk about some of the investing stuff and I want to give some actionable insights on things that you're interested in, things that you're seeing. But before we do that, I know the story because we have asked you before, what was the craziest thing you've ever dealt with in business? But I I need you, I need you to tell the story of wrestling for money to put into complex. You're killing me, by the way. I can't, like, I didn't want to tell it the first time. So it was at the, actually at the end of 2006, going into 2007, we had just broken even. And I went and had a conversation with the business lead, this guy, Seth Gersberg, who is another super smart, but crazy guy. And I'm like, good news, bad news. Good news is we broke even. Bad news is I'm not going to start paying you back. I need to take the profits from next year and put them 100% into going digital. And he's like, well, I'm already put all this money in and I want the money back and we don't want to do it. And I'm like, 
okay, if you don't want to do it, to me, that means you're not investing in my vision. By the way, I'm cleaning this up for this podcast. It was much more aggressive than that. But I was like, I'm out. And he goes, no way. And I'm like, he goes, you can't quit. And I'm like, well, you're not investing in what we need to do for this business to be successful. And he goes, all right, I'll make you a deal. And we started negotiating. We got down to like, we couldn't bridge this last $500,000. And Seth goes, I'll wrestle you for it. And first I started laughing because I'm like, there's no way he wants to wrestle for this. And he goes, no, 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 I'm serious. I'll wrestle you for it. If I win, you have to stay. You can't quit. He goes, but if you win, you'll get the 500,000 and we'll go forward. I'm not a small dude and I'm from Brooklyn. So it's a bad combination. But Seth is crazy and he's built like a fire hydrant. And I didn't realize he was also a wrestler at Rutgers. So we get up on this conference room table And luckily enough, I was able to grab his ear really hard and get a good hold. And we're able to get on top of him. And miraculously, we moved very quickly and we won because the company did win. What was funny about this is a year later, when we had launched this very successful digital initiative called the Complex Ad Network, Seth never apologizes for anything, by the way. He was one of those crazy people. Comes to me and goes, dude, I just want to let you know, I've never been happier about losing something. You were hundred percent right. I was hundred percent wrong and I'm sorry. And I was like, can you say that again? Cause I got to record that. And of course he was like, no way, never again. I will never even agree that I said sorry to you. So, but I just wanted to let you know that. And look, my viewpoint there is it's a great story. It's crazy. But at the end of the day, the lesson is don't be surprised. When it comes down, you will be challenged in ways that you cannot even anticipate. And you have to be prepared to do things that are well beyond your comfort zone to actually win as an entrepreneur. Now, maybe mine were a little absurd on one side of things, but that's how much I love this business and how much I was willing to go to the mat, literally and figuratively, for something like that. Rich, that is one of my favorite stories, literally all time. When you told us that the first time, I couldn't believe it. One, because it's hilarious, but two, I'm sure you both left that wrestling match or whatever you want to call it with like a mutual respect for each other even higher, right? Because you understood that you both were willing to do whatever it took, not only to win, but do things for your business, which I think is was well, admirable. Full disclosure, full disclosure, I thought once I agreed to it that he was just going to call it off. I thought it was a test. I didn't realize he was really mentally deranged yeah. and willing to do something like that. And then that. you're too far into it at that point, I assume, to back oh, out. Yeah. You got to fully commit. You got to fully commit. I love it. All right, let's talk about investing real quick. You've been investing for the last five or six years personally. What are you investing in and what gets you excited today? The answer is very different than it was when I first started. When I first started investing, I was 100% doing it for the money and the ROI. And I was loving the fact that I was a new minted successful entrepreneur and you had a lot of deal flow coming from traditional LPs. Today, a traditional fund being an LP in a traditional fund, I realized quickly that that wasn't for me. Letting other people make decisions on what to do with my money and their vetting of both businesses and CEOs and leaders and executive teams was not the same that mine was going to be. So I've disproportionately over the last three years done solo investing. And what I love even more is that I think you have a lot of new entrepreneurs that are looking at non-traditional investments. And you have these sectors that are almost shunning the past from a traditional investment basis. So a lot of my investments over the last couple of years have been in blockchain-oriented things, been in 
very invested both from a time and a dollar perspective in NFTs and platforms. I am very invested going forward and going to be very active in DAOs. What I'm trying to do is kill two birds with one stone. I'm trying to sate my personal thirst for education. So I want to be a part of learning from what's going on in those sectors and hopefully helping define what they look like as successful sectors down the road and individually successful businesses and make money and help young, very hungry entrepreneurs. I don't know if I can help them realize the largest visions in the world because that's predicting the future. But I think if I can help them not twist their ankle in the proverbial operational hole or learn how to build a community on a successful basis, learn how to navigate your board meetings very well, learn how to operate your cap table very well and use it as a strategic ad versus something that is dragging you down. Those are the things that I'm having fun with right now and disproportionately investing in some unbelievable companies. Like I've been drinking one of them. I'm a big athletic greens, not only investor, Me but too. fan. I love um, athletic greens. I love those athletic guys greens. are unbelievable. Yeah. Okay. So that brings up a lot of good points. One of the things I'm curious to talk to you about is the idea of decentralization as an ownership structure, right? So you mentioned DAOs specifically. I am a huge personal fan, as I assume you are, of the decentralized nature and kind of the benefits that it can bring to a lot of different things, whether it's money, organizations and whatnot. But I'm curious because one of the things that I always go back and forth with on this is the idea of centralization being beneficial in some organizations. So you as a founder of a company, I'm sure it was helpful at times to be able to make certain decisions yourself and not leave everything up to the vote of the greater good of the company and certain things, right? Things wouldn't turn out how they were. Some people have more knowledge about certain situations than others. Some people are more well-equipped. So how do you think about the idea of decentralization when it comes to DAOs and trying to buy companies or start things and stuff like that? Look, the more nascent a category or a product is, the more pain there is going to be. I believe this, I, I'm actually going to look at DAOs the same way as I look at managing your board for all intents and purposes. My viewpoint is, is if anything really comes down to a venomous vote, at a board meeting, me as the CEO, if I've taken their money and I've allowed a board meeting to become contentious and I haven't pre-sold everybody and we are not all aligned about where we need to go and everybody is in at least a compromised agreement, then I'm not doing my job or it's not the right idea. So you can't go, I love the openness of the functionality of the process of a DAO and then go, but I hate every other aspect that it brings, right? So if you don't want the traditional constraints and governance constraints that come from old school and traditional money, you have to transfer them to the new school, which is more openness and less direct control over your business. To me, if ease of capital and truly strategic partners is what you want, then you should be able to put up with the fact that you need to be able to justify what you want to do, how you want to do it, how much it's going to cost, when it's going to produce results. That's on you to still win. And it's not saying you can't do that. It's just the accountability raises versus just being a great salesman four times a year at a board meeting. Yeah. That's yeah. the way I look. I think that's fair. I think my thought process on it goes back and forth a little bit because of the ease of centralization, right? In some instances, back to what I mentioned before, but I guess a good example would be what would have been the outcome for complex? If you took complex in 2010 or 2012, we would, have, we would have failed. You would have failed. We yeah. would have failed. And look, we would have failed very simply, not just once, 
every one of those, like, you know, that letter that we talked about. And by the way, thank you for the compliment. But if you think about not just what we did, what we did was not being done by very many, if not any in certain times. And it was about 11 different instances, right? Where we iterated our business, the way we thought about it, the way we were going to monetize it, the way we were going to structure it. If we had to get consensus every single one of those times and considering how far ahead of the market we were every single time, there's no way everybody would have jumped off of that diving board with us every single time. There's just no way. Yeah. And I think that's a good way to look at it, right? Because in some instances, it's beneficial to have that openness and that decentralization and the ability for everyone to contribute and see what's going on. And then in other instances where it may not work out, right? So I think it's a good point to say that it's probably not for everything, but it can certainly have some benefits. You mean just like everything else? Yeah, of course. Nothing is a silver bullet that solves everything. People have to stop. DAOs are not going to completely replace private equity, venture, and it's not going to happen. They have to stop. It's going to be a very key initiative for certain groups of people in certain circumstances. And it's going to be either very effective because it's the right application or it's not. That's it. Period. End of story. Rich, this is my podcast. There's no logic allowed on here. We only speak in absolutes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. No. Okay. Jokes aside, let's talk for a second about what you would do if you were starting over. So one of the questions I love to ask is just the idea of, you know, a bunch of stuff, right? You have plenty of experience. You ran a company, a big company for two decades now. You've been through a lot. We talked about it with the great financial crisis, starting a business after 9-11, everything that's gone on, just a bunch of cycles and you know a bunch more now. But we're transitioning to a whole new mindset. All the things you're investing in weren't really around five or seven or eight years ago. So when you think about young Younger people today. It's two parts in my mind. One, I want to talk about the risk reward of starting a business. So I think a lot of people wonder, hey, should I go do this? What do you think about in the terms of starting an actual business? What should people think about and should they be concerned about other things? Well, that is such a difficult question to answer. Let me let me attack it from one aspect rather than on a holistic basis, because you can't answer this for everybody, right? Mm-hmm. I've been very vocal my whole life. I don't think most people should launch their own business personally. I know that's very, sounds very mean or very unpopular versus current opinions, but if you're going to be a successful entrepreneur, and I'm talking about building a big business with a ton of employees and other things like that. I'm not talking about a successful Shopify store or something like that. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just, there's a big difference between that level of entrepreneur and like someone looking to build nine and 10 figure businesses, right? So my viewpoint is most people should not do it because it's not the capabilities from an intelligence perspective. It's not just those. It's not just the access to capital. It's not just the time and the stress, but it's really the fortitude to be able to go, I'm going to have to put this brand, my employees, my investors, all the, the seen and unseen obstacles in front of myself for a very long period of time. And what that's going to do to me from a health perspective, from every angle, the yeah. choices you have to make. I just don't think most people want to make those choices. However, the flip side is, I will say this, in this day and age, I've never seen access to capital be easier. The acceleration of your business because of the openness of platforms and procedures and products. The ability to get help is unbelievable. Like 
investors are no longer putting their money and then yelling about when I'm going to get my ROI. They're like, I'm here to help you. I'm going to stump for you on social. I'm going to stump for you on the the front side and the back side. I'm going to have all the right conversations and everyone's playing for an exit. It's never been easier to exit before, right? Consolidation and people are willing to pay more overpay for the future versus your current P&L and EBITDA today. The paradigm has shifted. So when you put all those things together, the likelihood for a successful outcome and a faster outcome is better than it ever has been before. You just have to think about all that pain in a more compressed basis. So I look at it, people should go, am I willing to go all in? or not? That's your first question. If you are, then wow, oh my God, the aperture is very open. There's a lot of different things to do. Plus the money, all sorts of money is willing to make more aggressive bets on less proven models than ever before, which is very favorable to entrepreneurs. So it's kind of a a two-sided question is I don't think it's for everybody, but for the ones it is for, you've never had better circumstances. Yeah, I completely agree. Literally, I was shaking my head the entire time because people get mad when you say that everyone shouldn't be an entrepreneur, but it's the truth. There's just people that aren't built for it. There's people that do not want to do that. They don't want that out of life, right? There's plenty of people. I know plenty of people. I'm sure you do too, who just want to have a good job, make good money, protect them and their family and have a nice life. That's perfectly fine. And that's normal. Shut their phone off. Yeah, exactly. And not talk. Exactly. And the flip side of that, right, is just a really aggressive lifestyle in some instance that's just difficult. And you know that better than anyone. So the second part of that question, though, is if you take that route A, which is saying, okay, I'm built for this. I want to go do it. The access to capital is there. I have the ability to go create a product or service or whatever it is. What would you do if you had to start over and go do that? You know, in order to be more purposeful, instead of it answering it from my standpoint, let's look at it as what I believe the greatest opportunities are. So I look at it and go, what sectors, because everything for me is batting average, what sectors are least defined that you know will be around as a sector, but there's no clear market leader yet or no clear brand within each one? To me, it's like, well, we know DAOs are going to be around. We know digital, we know e-gaming is going to be around. We know sports franchises, sports in general is going to be completely rethought. By the way, that paradigm is about to flip. The owners, I know they're trying to hold on to it and I know their shit is worth more than ever before, but they have less control over their franchises and their players. I don't think they realize how fast, like right now it's 60-40 control. When it's 40-60, they're going to really be in for something. And I don't think they're ready for it personally. That's a whole nother conversation. But again, it's me, it's nascency of sector, the potential size of that sector. Does it align with your skill set? and your interests? And then do you have a solve for where, you know, I always talk about time continuums. It's like, we know the sector's organically growing. How long would it take for you to build a specific idea within that, where it will definitely intersect with the maturity of that sector that is organically growing? That's the way I look at everything. Yeah. So basically just increase your odds of success is really the easiest way to look at it. Yeah. I mean, for me, I think people overthink this stuff and they're looking for, I got news for you. Anybody who thinks they're all in, not to go back to your point, like, Hey, I've decided I'm I'm all in on being an entrepreneur. Anybody who's all in on being an entrepreneur, but would need to be told what to go in, isn't really an entrepreneur. Yeah. 
it finds you to some degree. And I also think That's it right. iterates and it changes because there's so many people that have ideas that change over time. The business model changes, the structure changes, but the one thing that doesn't is their ability to go out and build a business. As operators, you can tell people that can iterate over time and last multiple decades, it's really them. It's not their idea. Everyone has an idea. Right. It's more about the person, which I think is fascinating. You know, one, thing, one thing we haven't talked about is also, I actually believe what is being defined as a successful business or an exitable business is also completely different than it was even five years ago. So what do you mean by that? I think to have certain sizes of exits or going to certain companies or being a consolidator or going public, you could never dream of going public even seven years ago without EBITDA. You have some of these companies that have gone out with insane valuations do not have some, you had people going out pre-revenue. You had Rivian and pre-revenue going public. My point there is that what a successful business, how it's defined is no longer the same as it was. So now the ability to be creative about building a business, the aperture is more open. That brings up a good point, right? We saw a recession. Technically it was a recession, right? We saw two consecutive weeks. Sure. Of course. Right. So my point is, does that change when we see a real economic downturn? So my idea, right, is there's car companies, like you mentioned, that haven't sold a truck or a vehicle and they're valued at the third or the fourth largest car manufacturer in the world, which sounds insane. But there are obviously people that are going out and buying that equity and believe the business should be valued there, whether they're speculating or not, they're doing it. So that's right. Does this change when we see a big downturn? Do we stop saying, hey, this company can't go public pre-revenue, this valuation's insane, they need higher EBITDA, et cetera? I'd like to believe that we could become a little bit more discerning. Yeah. Because look, we've proven a lot of things. Whether you want to go to like a 45,000 foot philosophical level, just the belief that people are willing to suspend And and by the way, we've already done that with our own currency from a fiat perspective of the dollar is not backed by silver certificate or gold or anything anymore. It's just the faith in our country. So most people don't even understand that. But you think about then the leap of faith on a decentralized basis for cryptocurrencies, right? My point is, I think we have passed the critical mass of people looking at investments in a very rigid box from an evaluation perspective. I think it is, as you've opened up the participation level for investors, and by the way, that's not a trend, that's a permanent cultural shift. You can't go backwards, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. Just the sheer number of those people and the attitude behind believing that they can make something work. Half the people who are holders are really brand ambassadors for the community as much as they are for the individual product, right? Yeah. Like, let's just get real. So my point there is, I don't think that's something that some of those will go away when they feel some pain, but I think we have a whole new generation of people. There are a lot of them with a lot of wealth in its entirety who will just not go back to the way things were. I think it's permanently changed. Yeah, I agree with not being able to reverse some of the trends that are certainly happening today. It's just too difficult when you give people that power and that ability to take it back. It's just not going to work, right? So the last thing I would like to touch on is quickly just like personal investments. So whatever you're willing to share or whatnot, but I'm curious how your personal investment style has changed. Like what were you doing when you were younger? What are you doing today outside of angel investing and all of that kind of stuff? I didn't grow up with money at all. My dad was a UPS guy and 
we grew up in Brooklyn. So for me, when I first started making money and I was lucky enough to get into sales very young. So I started making good money when I was 23, 24 years old on a relative basis. And my dream was to always be like, oh my God, I can't wait to have a brokerage account with JP Morgan. And once I get to $500,000, I'm going to be set because then I can just convert to T-bills at 4% tax-free. And so, and by the way, I'm saying all these things and people are going to be like, that was ever the way it was, but it actually was in the nineties. So my viewpoint is I realized that the biggest mistake everybody makes is they take their own personal experience and extrapolate it out. So as I've gotten older, I've realized I'm stupid. Every time I take my own investment thesis and apply it, that everyone's going to act that way. I have to be very cognizant of the macro trends and make a delineation between what is a trend and what is a permanent cultural shift. I always invest in the permanent cultural shift. I dabble in the trend. So I've been lucky enough on an absolute dollar figure basis to have a foundational amount of money that can pay for my and my family's lifestyle without putting it at risk, without putting it in the middle of the circle and going all in. And I can still be aggressive. So I probably have a more aggressive ratio because I'm older, but I'm not that old. I have a long time to live. I still have a greater percentage of my portfolio in angel and what people look at is very risky in crypto and blockchain investments because A, I participate in that category. So I want to put my money where my mouth is. But I also believe that enough companies that I'm in will fail, but the upside of those companies and the multiples that they will trade at of the winners will be bigger than ever before and still produce an outsized return. Yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it. And venture capital and, and angel investing in general is always interesting to talk to people about because, again, it's not for everyone, right? People don't realize when they first start trying to do it, how long some of these exits can take, how many of these companies actually go to zero, the liquidity on some of these things and, and so on. And obviously there's levels to this of kind of who's good at and who's not uh, and deal flow and so on. But it's just a thing that's just not for everyone. And it's interesting to hear people kind of talk about their preferences and how they've changed over time. It's awesome. It sounds like you're obviously still super hands-on, which is cool and exciting. But before I let you go, I know we've been going for a while here, so I'm going to let you go. But I want to talk cool. about Complex, your shoes. Are you a big shoe guy or no? I've been very lucky to be in my position for a very long time. I was a shoe kid. I used to go down to Fulton, and which was the original like sneaker mall for all intents and purposes in Brooklyn in the 80s and 90s. So I was like an OG in that space for a long time. Obviously, I'm less worried about wearing all the right things. But the good thing is with my job, I get sent an awful lot of amazing sneakers. Do you have a favorite pair or no? I do. I'm old school. This is where nostalgia comes in. My two favorite pairs of sneakers of all time are the original Air Maxes, one of the only sneakers I wore in high school. And the only other pair of sneakers I wore were the Air Tech 2 Challenges, the Agassiz, the Hot Lavas, the black yep. and hot pink. Those to me are ultimate classics. I have several pairs of both. They're on rotation and they make me feel like I'm still in high school which I'll do that every day and twice on Sunday if possible. I was going to say, that's not a bad feeling, I'm sure. What's no, the, it's not a bad feeling. What's the most you've ever spent on a pair of shoes? Oh, shit. Well, you got to remember, I usually don't have to do it as a normal retail customer, but I did spend a thousand for a pair of the Supreme Nike Air Maxes back in the day. And by the way, when I spent 900 bucks on that, that was before people were really spending thousands. Yeah, that I was, was going to say, that's really not, I thought it was going to be higher than that, to be honest. I mean, CEO of Complex, I thought you were going to splurge on one yeah, or two. But I don't pay for it, 
Yeah, true. You gotta remember, like, I'm not paying for it. By the way, I have probably a 15 pairs that are worth over $15,000. Okay. So that's, that was the better question. What was the, what's the highest value of a gift you've been given? <laughs> which I guess is, <laughs> which I guess is 15,000. Well, I have, when we bought soul collector, they made me a one of one pair of the Bo Jackson trainers in soul collector colors with soul collector on the back heel. So I don't even know what those would be worth if I wanted to sell them, Yeah, but those will stay with me forever. That's awesome. All right, cool. That's a way better idea to phrase it as a gift rather than what you purchased, I guess. All right, Rich, thank you so much for doing this. Not only could you be doing a million different things with your time, but I could talk to you for two more hours. So we'll do it again at some point, but I appreciate you coming on. 100%. Thank you so much, by the way. Of course.